I'm Jess. And I'm Tiff. And we're your Curious Cousins. Where we talk about everything kooky and spooky in the state of Oklahoma. Welcome to episode 48. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. In the, in the throes of getting my classroom back in order. In the sweltering heat. Oh my gosh. We went to the uh, Sepulpa Aquatic Center yesterday. Uh-huh. And it's a really nice, got like three water slides, zero entry, lots of like fountains and things. It was really nice. And um, when I got into my car, when we left about three o'clock, it did say it was 108 outside. Oh, and no, it's disgusting. It just, I mean, thankfully it wasn't very humid yesterday. Today was, I thought, really humid, but it's just, it's just hot. so hot. It's such yeah. that oppressive heat. Yeah. So uh, it was a good day to be at the pool for sure. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it's just I I work inside all day. Yeah, like I work out in the shipping area, and so the bay doors are constantly opening and closing. Oh. So like it can get really hot in there sometimes. Yeah, when trucks come in, but I'm sure. <sighs> anyway, I know you know, and school starts in two weeks, and uh, if this keeps up, you know, we'll have to have indoor recess. We won't be able to go outside. Oh, really? So we can't go. I believe anything over 95, we won't go outside. Oh, uh, well, that's probably good. Though. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't usually, I mean, we don't have sunscreen on the kids. Right. And, um, stuff like that. So, and it's just, it's miserable for everybody. And there's, we have shade on our playground. We just don't have enough shade yeah. for everybody to be under. Well, with them running around yes. and being crazy, like, I can imagine the heat stroke or Yeah. Heat. When it's that hot, they don't want to do it. They just sit there anyway. So why waste our time just yeah. sitting outside when we yeah. could just be play some board games something. inside? So that was kind of nice on my uh, Amazon wish list, my teacher wish list. I had lots of indoor activities, activities and games for them for, like, indoor recess. I got, I got them. So oh, I got all of them. So I'm really excited for the kids to be able to do that during those indoor recess days. Well, I think it's supposed to start cooling down sometime this week a That's little bit. That's the word on the street. Well, I don't think like permanently, but at least for oh, a little while. I hope I so. mean, I don't know. Maybe. maybe. I just the slow down. I mean, it's just the beginning of August. So I know that. Yeah. Well, do we have any business? I don't think so. I nope. Don't think we we'll do be either. gone next weekend for our ghost tour of Oklahoma City. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm really excited. I am very excited about that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Let us know if you guys are going to join us and go out yeah. there. I mean, it's only $12, wasn't it? Yeah. Something like $12, that. $12, yes. So starts at 8 Something like that. I think. Yeah. So. so it will be so fun. I know. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be, it's been a while since we've gone on an adventure. I know. I know. So this so. will be fun. Yes. So today we're talking about part three yes. of our Girl Scout murders. Yes. Uh, we're covering the manhunt for uh -huh. Jean Leroy Hart <laughs> and then his trial. And so Jess is going to cover the manhunt, and I will cover the trial part. So, Jess, you want to yeah? Let's get just on in. Dive right in. Here we go. Okay. So sources are the same. Yeah. So I I'm do. not even going to go over them. Manhunt on June 21st, 1977, a burglary took place at a rural grocery store near Locust Grove. Um, food and cigarettes were stolen. Uh, Tiff, I know you talked about this in part one, but I'm going to try and briefly go over it again since okay. it's been a couple weeks so Larry Dry I talked about him last week mm -hmm. he was the one who escaped with Hart mm -hmm. twice mm -hmm. and from the Mays County Jail 
he actually identified cave one to the authorities. And that was also known as the cellar cave. And because it was the cave was a few hundred feet from the cellar and foundation that had been Jean Leroy Hart's childhood home. Mm-hmm. And um, they used it as a hiding place. Uh, both he and Hart after their first escape attempt, I believe it was from the jail. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this cave a little bit because you talked about it in your episode, but um, it's important the things that they found in there and how they pertain to his manhunt. But um, this is the cave where the authorities found two photos of two different women that were determined to have been from like a wedding or Mm -hmm, something like mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. And it's thought that Hart may have developed the photos while he worked as a photographic assistant at the Granite Reformatory. And that, you know, weird. And that was when he, right. Why was he, I I don't know. Because he had like good behavior. And so, that was one of the jobs he could work. I I just think it's weird that one of the jobs that were available at the correctional facility was picture development because there's a part of me that would be like, ooh, I don't know that I'd want inmates to have access to my family photos. Well, okay. In one source, I think I read that he, the the photographer was an inmate, but he was able to moonlight, I guess, I don't know if that's the right word, as a like wedding photographer and stuff like that. And he wanted Hart to be like his assistant that would go out and help him and stuff like that. But, but, but the authorities were like, nah, Nah. he can help you in here, but he's not going out there. So, um, anyway, these photos, it was thought that he, or I think I already said that. Yeah. When he developed them when he was, uh, an assistant And I had read that he kept them like, I don't even know if, well, I don't know. Anyway, um, he kept them because they both looked similar to his ex-wife, you know, because she divorced him while he was in prison. And they also found newspaper dated the same as the one that was in the flashlight at the crime scene. It's the same edition, same date, everything. Uh, broken eyeglasses were found. A piece of green plastic with duct tape attached was found. That matched the plastic that was found on the garage. Yep. I just kind of said these were similar to what they found mm-hmm. uh, on the flashlight at the crime scene. So anyway, two days after this burglary happened where the food and cigarettes were stolen, cave number two was discovered just west of Camp Scott. So when authorities searched the cave, they found cans of food that had been stolen from the same store that had been robbed two days prior. They also found the cigarettes Mm -hmm. that had been smoked Mm -hmm. by someone with type O blood, which was Hart's blood type. However, this was, is the most common blood type in the U.S. Do you have type O? What? Do you have type O blood? I honestly don't know. Oh, I do not. I've never... I, I think we test like we did the blood testing thing in high school, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I don't I honestly don't remember mm-hmm. what mine is. So I don't yeah. know. I did. I am not. My mother is. I think my mom is actually O negative, which I think is rare. Very that rare? rare. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly have no idea. I probably should but, get that. Yeah checked into but I have yeah, the same I as my dad I thought you asked me if I had a typo at, 
like 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 <laughs> no, I had a typo on, in my notes. <laughs> it took me a minute. Um, another mongoloid type hair was found, which matched hair found on the tape that had been used, I believe, on Denise Milner. Yes. And this cave was located on a ridge that actually overlooked the house of Hart's mother. Yes. So on June 23rd, 1977, at Sheriff Weaver's request, Sid Wise, the local district attorney, issued a warrant for Hart's arrest for first degree murder. This was just the beginning of the manhunt that would um, ensue for Jean Leroy Hart. And when the DA announced that Hart would be charged with triple murder, this immediately divided the small town of Locust Grove into two different groups. So the first group were those who thought Hart was being used as like a scapegoat Mm -hmm. by Sheriff Weaver. Mm -hmm. And the second group are those who believe that he was 100% guilty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, this threw Mays County into a giant uproar. Those who thought Hart was innocent began to vocalize their opinion to the media. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty resolute in their belief that the DA had the wrong man. And a lot of Hart's old classmates remembered him as a quiet, good looking football star. An old flame said that he was the perfect gentleman. Um, local restaurants and gas stations actually set out jars to collect funds for Hart's defense. Those who were in support of Hart just saw it as Sheriff Weaver was embarrassed that Hart had escaped jail twice and the sheriff was just out for revenge. And I see that. I could see that. I could see that he had a bone to pick because he had escaped twice. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. People... But- e- People even went out of their way to say the sheriff planted or tampered with evidence just yes. so that he could frame Hart. Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm personally having a hard time with is the fact that this good old boy, I'm doing quotes here, mm-hmm. raped two pregnant women. Right. Tied them up and left them in the middle of nowhere so that he could come back and do who knows what. Right. And then he plead guilty too. And yes. And then he was convicted. He was sent to jail for it. Gets on parole for good behavior. And And then he becomes a petty thief. Yeah. And like, but here's the thing is this community that's so like, oh, the sheriff's just out to get him. Yet um, he can't get like when he gets paroled from all this, he can't get another job in the same community because he has rapist attached to his name. So oh, good point. You know, like I'm, I'm having where a hard were they time getting. Him, where were they at helping him yes. out finding a job? And you know, and then he starts burglarizing people. Right, he does. He gets caught and sentenced for that, and escapes jail twice. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's like, oh well, this he's being framed. Okay, make it make sense. You know what I mean? Like, right. like regardless. He was still wanted and you still shouldn't have protected him because he still had time to serve in jail, regardless on if he thought he was innocent or guilty of these murders. He still needed to pay the piper, right? What gets me is he he pled guilty. Right. He he did. He confessed to the um, kidnapping and the Mm -hmm. rape. And yet you're going to tell me like he was, you know, Okay, we're not going to get into that. But you know what I mean? Like, it just boggles my mind. But anyway, I get at the time that there were maybe 
still some prejudices right against certain groups yes. of people but um that shouldn't negate the fact that Hart was a convicted felon right and he was on the loose right so I'll get off my soapbox now <laughs> anyway the Cherokee Nation came together and supported their fellow citizen over time they would donate um, $12,500 to Hart's defense fund to ensure that he got a fair trial. Yes. At the time, Hart's 21-year-old brother Millard, who had quite a bit of contempt for the cops already, um, made the following statement. He said, quote, every time something goes wrong, the law always goes to Gene, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so here are some things that Gene Hart is innocent group believed the two photos of the women that we keep mentioning mm-hmm. this group thought that because all personal belongings were taken from prisoners when they were booked into the Mays County Jail Sheriff Weaver would have had to have been the only one to have access to those photos yes. now I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to kind of come back to this I come a, back to it too in I, a little bit I visited as well so during the trial phases, therefore, it was believed that when two squirrel hunters discovered the cave and went to the authorities where they were then accompanied back to the cave by state trooper Newton, trooper Newton, who had been part of the rest of Hart when he had kidnapped and raped the two Tulsa women years earlier, possibly still had like a bias against him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they thought Sheriff Weaver must have slipped trooper Newton the photos as he headed out to go to the cave with the squirrel hunters and he somehow dropped them in the open where, when they were searching and um, where the hunters would then see them and find easily find the photos. So that was just a lot of, a lot of steps just to plant two photos. Right. Right. Um, Because, you know, and how would you know if this trooper would even follow the suggestion well, and they don't you know? even know if he had a bias against heart like they right, just exactly kind of assuming that oh he must have had a bias because he was a part of the group that yeah was there during his arrest for the rape and kidnapping but um because i mean why would heart want to leave these his photos just out in the elements mm-hmm. where they could be ruined you know that was kind of their but it was inside of a thought. cave so so the crazy thing about the photos though is um, one source said that Larry Dry said that Hart didn't have the the pictures with him in the Mays County Jail and that he must have left them at the home of a family member back in 1969 when he was paroled from his kidnapping rape sentence. And Dry had actually seen the pictures in Hart's possession following their September 16th, 1973 escape. So he knew that he didn't have them before, but after they escaped... All of a sudden, he has them. So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. On the opposite hand, the group believing Hart to be 100% guilty, uh, they began to keep a very close eye out for any kind of sighting of Hart. And the sad thing about this is, is that although there were the ones that who wanted to get justice for the three little girls who were brutally murdered, um, there were others who were just wanted that quick buck to pocket some money Mm -hmm. and weren't really there for the right reasons. Several private and public organizations set up reward funds for the person who could lead authorities to Hart's location 
and capture and the reward would get up to fifty thousand dollars yeah so we talked about june 23rd when the da made the announcement for um that he was wanted the for warrant. a triple yeah. murder they right issued the warrant for his arrest. so around lunchtime on that same day that hart was made known to be the suspected killer a farmer reported seeing a man sitting in an overhang of a cliff on a ledge but could only see him from the waist down and thought it might be Hart. So tracking dogs were summoned, a search team were summoned. And you got to remember, this is Oklahoma in the summertime, July. in the middle of June. For June, yeah. And of course, the area being searched is like crawling with ticks and chickers and who knows what else. This greatly hindered the agents who soon became just covered in the blood-sucking oh, devil bugs. Oh, gross. And oh my god. They were going to have to get out there or they were going to have to um get out of that area and come back and kind of regroup just because it was so heavily infested. Oh. I mean, they said they were just covered. Oh my gosh, my whole body is crawling right now. Agent Harvey Pratt, um I want to talk about him for just a minute. Agent Pratt, who was part of the search party as a Cheyenne Arapaho, he was a strong believer in Indian medicine. And this included like rituals with smoke and um, those sorts of things. During the search, he didn't really let the ticks bother him. And he just continued up to the cave like he was one of the ones that made it up there. In front of a crevice lying on the ground, he found cigarette butts with the filter torn off. It was common practice among Cherokees to tear off a cigarette filter when using it to practice Indian medicine. Oh. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know any of this, but I don't really know much about Indian medicine either. Anyway, Agent Pratt also noticed that there were ashes from four small fires that had been built right in front of the crevice. Four being a significant number and tradition in Indian medicine with four fires representing the four winds and the four seasons. He made this, um, he made his way behind the crevice where he noticed that it was completely devoid of ticks. And this convinced Agent Pratt that Hart had been there and was using medicine to protect himself. Um, evading not only the ticks, but it was believed evading his captors as well mm-hmm. like they that he was using this indian medicine okay. to evade everyone there was more cigarette butts with the filters torn off and some long black hairs the same type of hair that was caught in the tape around denise milner's wrist and on her pajama top uh, the search party went back to so he's still, I don't know if he came back or if he stayed there, but the search party would end up coming back to cave number two an hour later. And they were like doused and like tick repellent, yeah. including the tracking dogs. The dog was given the scent that surrounded the ledge area. And as soon as the dog was let off the leash, the dog immediately took off towards the east and like outrunning everyone. But they could tell in which direction he was because of the barking. And the tracking dog ended up heading back west towards the ledge and then eventually returned back to his handler. And the handler said that the subject must have, like, backtracked. Right. and Or doubled back, you right. know. Whatever the case was, the dog couldn't pick anything up. And 
that was very disheartening. Right. Well, I also think that Hart probably knew he was being tracked by dogs mm-hmm. and probably made things like like double backed, double backed. Oh, know, yeah. I'm sure he had some tricks up and sleeve right. to get him off right. his trail. Because and- especially if he were paying attention to any of the news, which mm-hmm. knowing most, um, most, I, I would say serial killers, only because I just listened to, this is, sorry, this is off the track. I just listened to an update about uh, the Gilgo Beach murders and where he, the the man who right mm-hmm. now who's being charged with the murders, um, he literally like tracked himself on social media and on news outlets and Googled himself or Googled, mm-hmm. you know, his serial killer name and everything. Yeah. And so, um, and just to think that like, you know, Ted Bundy did it too. And oh, yeah. they watched the news about it. Mm-hmm. And um, to just think that he probably, I mean, he knew. Yeah. He, he could totally watch the news right. or read the newspaper and yeah. know exactly what yeah. was going on. Oh, yeah. Well, and we'll get into it, too. Um, like, the people were helping him. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, Tiff, you had talked about some of the footprints mm-hmm. that were found. So these footprints of a military-style boot with lugs in the sole not only had love tracks at the murder tent, but the Shroff House, which the Shroff House was close to, I believe, Cave 2 and was being robbed pretty frequently. And um, they were also found at Sam's Corner, which I think was like a grocery store or like a gas station yes, or something yes, like that. I remember that. But these same footprints were now found at Cave 2. So as the evening was coming on and light was fading, a four-mile square area encompassing Cave 2 was surrounded by law enforcement and hundreds of local volunteers who stayed through the night to, to help search. A SWAT team was brought in, and headlights from cars were used to um, illuminate the search perimeter. Nearly two dozen dogs were used to um try and detect the subject but kooky enough no suspicious persons were ever found or spotted hiding inside of a cave (laughs) when morning came uh, a manhunt station was set up at sam's corner the search area had widened to a 10 square mile radius at this point it had become like a small army of law enforcement and citizen volunteers. One source said that it had something like 200 lawmen and like 400 uh, civilian volunteers, which is and just to think they had the opportunity to also have the national guard out there and they turned it down. Right. They were using tracking dogs, helicopters, heat detection devices, nothing. Uh, Sheriff Weaver even warned the volunteers that the suspect could be armed and dangerous. The search went on practically all day And their biggest enemy was the dense undergrowth, Mm -hmm. intense heat, because, you know, middle of June in Oklahoma, snakes, and of course the ticks and the chiggers. Bug spray was proving to be just, like, worthless (laughs) against the little vampiric beasts. And (laughs) it was just, I mean, I can imagine the nightmare it must have been to be in the heat like that and then having to deal with all this other crap on top of it. I can't, I mean, ugh. Yeah. Um, Due to all these conditions working against the search party, according to one source, it only lasted four days before it kind of became too much and was essentially abandoned. 
The FBI joined the search, and one source said that a group of U.S. Army veterans who served in Vietnam, calling themselves the Spooks, also joined in a search, but they also failed in finding anything. And as time went on, sightings and rumors, of course, like surfaced every now and then. But um, when investigated, it led to nothing. It led to, to no arrests or anything. Right. An OSBI agent, Leo Albro, who handled Hart during the 1966 rape incident, knew his mother. So he went to LMA's house to try and convince her to give her son up. <laughs> well, uh, she was having none of it and actually ran Agent Albro off her porch with a shotgun. <laughs> so here's some interesting information. July 4th, 1977, exactly three weeks after the crime took place, a 17-year-old juvenile delinquent, Darren Creekmore, was released from the Sequoia School, a boarding house run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, just some 30 miles south of Locust Grove. By July 13th, just about a week later, Darren Creekmore was being held in Mays County Jail as a runaway. Uh, I mentioned Darren because while he was in Sheriff Weaver's jail, he told a pretty amazing story. <laughs> Creekmore told the sheriff that he had seen Gene Leroy Hart at a cave on the land owned by Jack Schroff, which we know had been frequently robbed. This cave was located near Creekmore's grandmother's house, where he had been living since uh, being released from the boarding school. He apparently had a conversation with Hart, but weirdly Ooh. enough, he couldn't provide much detail about what they actually talked about. After the third recounting of his story, Sheriff Weaver was just like, okay, well, let's go check it out then. Let's go find this cave. You're coming with us. And Weaver told Creekmore that if Hart was there, he would receive like a $700 uh, money reward mm -hmm. that had been collected so far and i mean what kid would not be excited about right. that sheriff weaver and a couple of other lawmen took creekmore with them to check out the spot where the said cave was either it was located or it wasn't like it's unclear it just depends on who you believe like whether you believe creekmore or you believe the sheriff and then again there's that does the sheriff say it was not yeah according to creekmore he pointed out the cave up in a ridge and the sheriff and his deputies went up and checked it out. Uh, when they came back, they told him that no one had been there in or around the cave in any recent time. And Creekmore insisted that he knew for a fact that he knew better because he had just been to the cave. He said he could tell them where the fire had been built and saw footprints that looked like they were made from combat boots. However, Sheriff Weaver would testify that the cave was not found that day. So it's kind of like yeah, he said, he said, yeah. So there's no telling what the actual truth is on this. Like, I don't know. So it's hard to believe either one of them. Right. Yeah. Right. On July 29th, 1977, Sheriff Weaver, OHP, OSBI, FBI, and a dog handler went back out to, quote, quote, look for the cave. I'm that's how it was written in the source. Mm -hmm. uh, this time they found it. 
Uh, this is cave three okay. where it had the message seven, seven dash six dash 17. The killer was here. Bye bye fools, which you talked about mm-hmm. in the first episode. So some people thought that this was just Sheriff Weaver making his own evidence against Hart. And Sheriff Weaver did take some newsmen up to cave three to show them the writing and his response to the, the accusations were, um, that first off the terrain to get to the cave is awful. Mm-hmm. And why in the world would anyone go all the way up there just to write a message that was only found by chance is how right. he put it. This cave, um, had a direct line of sight to the back gate of camp Scott where the bodies were discovered. So OSBI kept working to piece together a timeline for Hart's movements since he had escaped four years prior they learned that Hart actually stayed at a cousin's house at the end of 1976 and had stayed the first three to four months of 1977 with this cousin. And then he disappeared uh, just weeks before the murder. So he would have been in at the area. Camp Scott or in the area mm-hmm. in when they were ha- in, in the April time period when mm-hmm. they were having all when, you know, the donuts were stolen and they had found the notes yes yep his cousin pleaded ignorance to the fact that hart was a prison escapee and had believed hart to have been newly discharged from the army i kind of find that hard to believe did he ever join the army i don't i don't think he did i don't think he ever joined the army in fact i don't even think he'd be able to because he was a convicted felon right Yeah, I mean, he went, especially after, you know, the rape, but even I'm like, even when, after he graduated high school, he didn't join. No, because he got married right out of high school, right? Yeah, he got married, like he graduated in 1963 Mm -hmm. and then this rape and murder or not, sorry, I'm sorry, I misspoke. This kidnapping and rape happened in 1966. Okay, so yeah, there was no way he could have joined the, yeah. And, so. and I feel like if you're cousins, like you would know. I mean, I would assume. It- well, and I'm about to get into a little bit and which is why I'm like skeptical that he didn't know this. Yeah. So another another of Hart's cousin who was a minister told OSBI that two weeks before the murders, he and a friend went to LMA, Hart's mother. Right to her house to borrow a fishing pole and then returned a little later to uh, dig up some worms from her yard. They claimed that they had seen Hart there and knew that he was wanted by the law and that Hart spent a lot of time at his mother's house. But, quote, Cherokees do not tell on each other. It's a code of honor. One thing authorities did learn about Hart from his cousin was that Hart's eyesight, remember, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, was poor and yeah. seemed to be getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. He was known to wear anyone's glasses that might help him see better, even those belonging to females. Right, right. Someone on the run can't very well go to the optometrist to get a new prescription of glasses, so Hart had to make do. Remember, he did this when he kidnapped the two women. Mm-hmm. And we know when the camp counselors at Camp Scott had their uh, reported their eyeglasses missing, which was then later found in one of the caves. Right. 
So after there were glasses found near the bodies. Yes. So after several more frustrating weeks of just a stagnant investigation, Agent Larry. OK, I might be saying this wrong, so I apologize. Agent Larry Bowles, I believe, uh, approached the OSBI agent in charge, which was Ted Limpke, with some very promising news. Agent Bowles had someone who could 100% lead them to Gene Hart on one condition. So the condition being that no other agent other than Agent Bowles could ever know the person's name. Oh. Not even other members of the OSBI. Oh. So letting someone remain completely anonymous was something that kind of went against OSBI protocol. However. I can see where that might not be be legal in a court of law or hold up Mm -hmm. agent bowles insisted that leaving the informant completely anonymous was the only way the informant would help them and if the informant's name was to be mentioned it would endanger his life oh agent bowles guaranteed the osbi executives at the state capitol that the informant had reliable information and that he would bet his job on it oh yeah So the informant was in Hart's inner circle and he spent a lot of time at LMA's house and he was there when LMA pulled that shotgun on Agent Albro when he came to ask her about Hart's uh, whereabouts. Uh, He was in on all the private conversations LMA had with her family and the informant had been to... Okay, this is kind of crazy. The informant had been to a Cherokee stomp dance in late August of 1977, when a medicine man, William Lee Smith, had like sidled up to him mm-hmm. and um, they were standing by the ceremonial fire, Smith communicated to the informant that an old man wearing overalls who was currently standing on the other side of the fire was harboring Hart at his home. So... We're going to call him Mr. Overalls because that's what the source called him. Okay. Mr. Okay. Overalls lived in the Cookson Hills near Tahlequah. Uh, the medicine man, Smith, assured the informant that Hart was safe and was being well taken care of. And Smith had made all the arrangements with the fellow medicine man himself. So Mr. Overalls was also a medicine man. Even though the informant was a Cherokee and supposedly loyal to Hart, that loyalty didn't go far when $50,000 was mm-hmm. in his grasp and was involved. And that was kind of what they said was his incentive. Right. The OSBI did agree to the terms. Uh, it took the informant some time to get specific information because he never asked questions. He just listened. And he played it smart by being patient and uh, never arousing suspicion amongst Hart's family and that he had daily contact with. Although, here's... Don't you think these people would notice if you suddenly had 50,000 more dollars? Well, I don't think I don't think he had it yet. I don't. Well, I meant like eventually, like even, you know, when he got caught, when, you know, when Hart was arrested or whatever, like, I think people would quickly figure it out when all of a sudden you're like, oh, I think I'm going to make some repairs or I'm going to get a new car or something. some money. Right. (laughs) They're like, uh. Where did you get that? Where did you get that from? Yep. 
The informant did overhear LMA mention that Mr. Overalls sold firewood. The OSBI did some research, but they could never come up with the name of the man. And what the OSBI resorted to was <sighs> catching medicine man William Lee Smith's wife, Eva, when she was at home alone oh. and actually threatened to throw her and her husband in jail if she refused to take and show them where Mr. Overalls lived, which I, I think that's kind of crappy. You know what I mean? Right. Like she was that. It's just, I don't know. It's like on one hand, it's like, okay, she knew where he was and you would hope they would do the right thing. And like, Right. But then again, you know, she they might have been in that camp where they're like, he, he's being set up. Right. You know, they're trying to frame him. Oh, yeah. That's kind of I don't like that. I yeah. That makes me feel icky. Yeah. So Mr. Real or Mr. Overall's real name was Sam Pigeon. Oh, Sam Pigeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor Eva was so scared. She complied. Right. Uh, well, if you got the FBI. Right. And the OSBI. I mean, both of them. I would be scared, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, medicine man Sam Pigeon was harboring heart in a three-room shack that was at the top of a hill up behind the home of one of Pigeon's brothers. Because of all the blackjack trees and the distance, the shack was basically invisible mm-hmm. and um, from the road. Like, you couldn't right. see it from the road at all. Eva Smith actually had to point out the nearly impassable ruts that led up to the shack. And the OSBI left Eva in in their van while the agents surrounded the shack. Ew, and it's like it's summertime. Summer, right? And as um, Agent Jack Lay kicked the front door in, oh, he came face to face with Gene Hart. Man. He was the only one in the shack at right. the time. So... Hart attempted to flee out the back door uh, it, when it, that didn't work out so well for <laughs> no, him. No, he was surrounded. He was given the choice to either surrender or die. He ended up face down on the ground in front of the shack wearing handcuffs. You know what he said once in the cuffs? What? I didn't kill those little girls. Oh, my God. That's the first thing he says. First off, you're on the lo- you're on the run from the law for burglary. That's what we're really go- we can actually get you for. Uh huh. Yep. So Gene Leroy Hart was captured on Thursday, April 6, nineteen seventy eight, ten months after the Girl Scouts were murdered at Camp Scott. Agent Bowles had his informant uh, hiding in the back seat of a car in order to identify Hart. He now had quite a bit of money he, that he earned as a, the reward. Um, the remaining money would be paid out upon Hart's conviction. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Kooky fact. And this is the last thing I'm going to leave you with. Over $2 million had been spent in capturing Gene Leroy Hart. Um, and if it wasn't for the informant, uh, there's a good chance he might never have been caught. And so that, my friends, is the manhunt. Wow. And it was. It was the biggest manhunt uh, until really the Jameson family disappearance. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Jess, 
That was a great coverage of the manhunt. Okay. I, really I, I was like there. worried it might be too long, too much information. I think this is going to be a long episode. It'll be fine. So <laughs> I'm going to cover the trials. Okay. And so we're going to start with the prelim. Okay. Hearings. A uh, special judge from Claremore was assigned to the case. His name was J- Jess B. Clayton Jr. Oh. The trial began June 7th, 1978. So about almost a year later. Mm-hmm. There was extensive security and armed guards posted around the courthouse. This was like the trial of, I won't, I don't want to say century, but I mean, it was the trial of, of a lifetime in Oklahoma. Of a lifetime I mean, in like, Oklahoma. Yeah. It ranked up there with the Bundy trial in the Well, 70s, I can imagine you know? the, the upset parents mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um, oh man, I can only right. imagine how that probably went. Um, if you were one of the, I don't know quote lucky I would say uh, spectators that was allowed to get into the preliminary hearing you were searched by a deputy there was only room for about a hundred spectators in the courtroom so the supreme court um now did this take place in Mays County or was it in because you said a Claremore judge was assigned in Mays County yes okay so this is kind of a kooky fact um, at the request of KOTV mm-hmm. um, of Tulsa and the Tulsa Tribune newspaper, they petitioned the Supreme Court to allow for closed circuit TV coverage to take place. And so they, the Supreme Court did agree to this. And so they had closed circuit TV of the courthouse hearings and it was fed to an auditorium there in Pryor City Hall. Uh, the prelim hearings in Oklahoma are usually perfunctory, and that simply means that they're carried out with a minimum of effect or reflection, uh, meaning that the state only had to prove that a crime t- had taken place and that there was probable cause to believe that the defendant did said crime. Oh, interesting. Um, no one in this fact, no one, you know, in these types of hearings are found guilty or innocent. The state really puts a minimum of the evidence out there and the defendant mm-hmm. generally doesn't offer any evidence. Mm-hmm. But this was not the case here. Okay. So that, that was just typical. Mm-hmm. Clearly, a crime had been committed. Mm-hmm. It was three murders, in right. fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but pinning it on heart was going to be the difficult part. So, yes... As you just said, we just had this 10-month manhunt for this Mm -hmm. guy. But when it came down to it, proving that he was the one who committed these murders was going to be difficult. So they had 176 witnesses subpoenaed. Oh, my goodness. 56 of them by the state, 120 of them by the defense. Oh, wow. At the actual hearing, only 23 witnesses were called by the state and 75 by the defense. That's still a lot, That's though. That's still an awful lot. Yeah. The hearing, mm-hmm. the preliminary hearing, lasted four weeks. Oh, wow. The Daily Oklahoman wrote an editorial criticizing the judge and the defense lawyers for dragging out this hearing. Because that was not typical. Hearings, I don't, I, even today, I don't think hearings last that long. I don't, I don't know. Evidence that was included during the prelim. The fingerprint found on the flashlight left near the girl's body was not hearts. The bloody footprint on the floor of the tent was made by a smaller foot than hearts. Photographs found in Cave One were believed to have been developed by Hart in 1968 
as well as eyeglasses similar to those stolen from the camp counselor. Mm-hmm. Masking tape found there was similar to that found on the victim's bodies. Mm-hmm. The Tulsa newspaper found in the cave was the same edition, same date as the newspaper found inside the flashlight. One pathologist testified that none of the girls had been sexually assaulted. Another pathologist testified that two of the girls had been assaulted with semen present. Mm. Hair found in the tape binding Doris Milner's hands was that of someone of Mongolian or Native American heritage. Milner's hair was found to be a mix of Caucasian and African American heritage. Thus, it was also testified that the hair found on Doris Milner had the same characteristics as Hart's hair. Mm. This was allowed, even though the witness admitted, I cannot identify a person by a hair comparison. Interesting. So it could have been any number Mm -hmm. of either Native Americans or Mm -hmm. Mongolian descendants. The testimony was heard from Larry Dry, the escaped convict partner of Hart's from Mm -hmm. Mays County Jail. He tied the items in Cave 1 to Hart, testified that he and Hart had hidden in the cave and he had seen Hart with the photographs. He also testified that he had restrained Hart from harming a 13-year-old girl by threatening him with a shotgun. Oh, I hadn't heard that. So here's a kooky fact. After giving this testimony, Governor David Boren paroled dry additionally dry was being held in delaware county on burglary charges at the time Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. jimmy dean bunch was another one that testified he had served time with hart in McAllister. so prior to the hearing he gave the defense lawyers a recorded and signed statement saying that he believed hart innocent He claims he was offered parole by a prison guard if he would say that Hart had committed the murders. During the hearing, Bunch disclaimed his record or his recorded statement, saying he was given promises and put under pressure by defense lawyers, Isaacs, which you'll find out is Hart's defense lawyer. Bunch then flipped again. Oh, my gosh. And testified that he had asked Hart if he had committed the murders. And Hart told him, I really don't know. He claims Hart told him that he had been, quote, smoking reefer and drinking wine for three days. (laughs) I woke up in the cave and had blood all over me, end quote. Isaacs, the defense lawyer, was enraged during this because Mm -hmm. this was his this was his witness. And he Uh called him. Yeah. And declared Bunch a hostile witness. In the end. Bunch's entire testimony was unreliable, thus neither party called him during the actual trial. Well, I mean, <laughs> how back and forth oh do you have to go? Right? Like, I'd be like, I don't want him. I don't want him. You want him? I don't want him. He's your witness. I know, right? <laughs> you called him. The last morning of the hearing, a bomb threat occurred. Ugh. Around 9 a.m., an, an unidentified man called into the Mays County Courthouse and said a bomb would go off at 10.15 a.m., The courthouse was cleared and searched, but nothing was found. So due to this, Sheriff Weaver returned Hart to McAllister. He didn't want to take any chances of Hart escaping or being injured. And I just want to look at him and be like, Sheriff Weaver, where was this forethought? Mm -hmm. Where did they where did they take him? Back to McAllister. Okay. Where was this forethought years ago when you originally transferred him from McAllister so that he could go? 
he could ha- retry these burglary mm-hmm. hearings. Where was this? Why did you just not go back and forth picking him up? Especially when he escaped the first time exactly. and they caught him again. Exactly. Why did they not immediately put him exactly. back in the Big Exactly. And then just come and get him every time. Makes no sense. On July 7th of 1978, Gene Hart is ordered to stand trial for three counts of first degree murder. In between July of 1978 and March of 1979, when the actual trial would finally begin, a few things happened. Okay. Sam Pigeon's home was again searched looking for things that might have belonged to Hart. Mm -hmm. So just like you just said, he was the one who was found to have been harboring him. Right. This was technically at this time was the third time his home had been searched. The only new evidence found was a corn cob pipe. And a button nose. No, sorry, I couldn't myself. <laughs> really, honestly, as I was like reading my notes, I was like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And a hand mirror. The items had not been found during any of the previous two searches. However, one agent thought he remembered seeing them there, but wasn't sure. Enter Camp Scott counselor Karen Mitchell with her parents. Okay. Identified both items as belonging to her. Wait, the corn, oh, the corn cob yes. pipe and the hand mirror. Okay. <laughs> she had taken the pipe to use during skits that the campers would put on. Uh huh. Um, this further linked Hart to Camp Scott. But please note, these items were, and still are, highly contested items. Many believe that they had been planted there by law enforcement. They searched it two times before, and they didn't find those two items. I mean, that does seem a little suspicious. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. In August, Mays County District Attorney Sid Weiss had lost the election to continue as the county's DA. He was pushed... So he pushed to have the trial done by January before he left office because he wanted to be a part of it. Oh. Also, in this same month of August, Sheriff Weaver suffers a heart attack but recovers. So both Weiss and Weaver were the focus of intense animosity from the Cherokee people, like you mentioned Mm -hmm. before. In October, Chief Swimmer announced the tribe would contribute $12,500, which is almost $51,000 today, to Hart's defense to ensure he had, like you said, Mm -hmm. a fair trial. OSBI chemist Janice Davis took semen samples collected from the victims and samples collected from Hart's underwear while in prison and had them sent to a reproductive medicine expert, Dr. John McLeod at Cornell University. All right. Also, no, this is also very contested. One of the state's pathologists had already claimed that no semen was found on any of the victims. Mm -hmm. Dr. McLeod stated that in his opinion, based on statistical computations, the sperm found on the victims was likely hearts. Although, remember, it is 1978 and there was no way to scientifically verify it. And even the doctor, he says that scientifically he cannot verify that this is actually it, but Mm -hmm. the characteristics matched his. Yeah. Interesting. KOTV in Tulsa filed with the Oklahoma Supreme Court requesting the trial be televised. The court ruled it could be, but only if the state, judge, and defendant all agreed. Well, guess what? Someone didn't. The defense objected. So it would not be televised. However, 
There were allocated two rows of seats for the media, one designated media person to be present during any proceedings that took place in the chambers. Family members of the victims and Hart's own family members were also had reserved seating. In November of 1978, a scandal of sorts was discovered because we can't have a high profile case without a scandal, right? Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. D.A. Sidwise and prior newsman Ron Grimsley had agreed to co-author a book about the murders. This was discovered to have gone down, get this, Jess, just four months after the murder. So October of 1977. We didn't even have a suspect. They were in the middle of a manhunt. But we're going to co-author this book together. So we're just going to profit off these poor girls' death. Absolutely. Ugh. Gosh. Wise would allow Grimsley to look at top secret OSBI and FBI reports. We have a murder case that you are going to want to get tried and you're letting any, any Tom, any, Dick, and Harry yeah. look at it. I was going to say any Joe. Yeah. Right. And Wise would receive 75% of the proceeds of the book sales. When Wise lost his run for DA, Grimsley approached the defense and agreed to work with them. So he flipped no. sides for a sum of $875 while furnishing them with those confidential OSBI reports. Are any of those funds going to go to the victim's families that oh, you're profiting off of? Oh, absolutely not. I'm sure. <sighs> he ended up providing me. the defense with 26 pages of reports given to him by Wise himself. When this all came to light, D.A. Wise excused himself from further work as an investigator. And so I wanted to read from you or to you page 134 from Oklahoma's Most Notorious Cases. Mm -hmm. They just really kind of say it really well here. The revelation of the book deal and the release of the OSBI records to an unauthorized party were all the defense needed to serve a subpoena on the OSBI. The defense sought work papers and reports on the grounds that any legal client attorney confidentiality had been breached when Wise furnished the 26 pages of documents to Grimsley. On November 17th, Judge Whistler held a hearing to determine whether the defense was entitled to the OSBI reports. Wise was called as a witness and admitted the book partnership, but denied giving the reports to Grimsley. He tried to explain away his earlier denial of the agreement with Grimsley by saying the contract had expired, but this was contrary to its written terms. Oh my gosh. I have no words. I'm just flabbergasted. The prosecution would now be led by Tulsa County DA S.M. Fallis Jr. Or Fallis. It's either Fallis or Fallis. Okay. All right who had actually assisted with the case since June of 1978. So now we've determined that even Mays County, their DA can't even be trusted. Now we're pulling in Tulsa counties. Judge Whistler now held a hearing to determine whether the defense was entitled to the OSBI reports, like I told you. So Grimsley was also subpoenaed. Mm -hmm. He suspiciously fled the state to avoid testifying. How convenient. Right. A bench warrant was issued for him. He was located in Missouri. Grimsley appeared in the court and testified that Weiss had been present when he had made the copies of the report. In the end, Judge Whistler denied the defendant's request for the reports and 
get this, quote, chastised Wise, saying, I think Mr. Wise shows very poor judgment in allowing a stranger, an outsider, to handle, to read the work product belonging to the state. So basically, he just got a slap on the wrist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. That is disgusting. (laughs) So on March, so you can just see, like, in my mind, like, when we get to the when we get to the verdict, like why the verdict yeah. isn't what we wanted it to be. Right. March first, a court of criminal appeals ruled that the prosecution had to turn over any evidence, including the OSBI reports, that might tend to clear heart. It also determined that Weiss had forfeited the right to confidentiality when he furnished some of the reports to Grimsley. On March 6th of 1979, jury selection for the trial begins. March 19th, the trial finally begins. Trial for the murder charges against Jean Hart. The jury consists of six men and six women. The courthouse was packed. The trial judge was District Judge William Whistler, and he repeatedly refused to delay the trial. The defense kept trying to put in delays, 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 and he keep he kept refusing. I mean, at this point, we're almost two years. Right. No Native Americans or residents of Locust Grove were on the jury. The jury was sequestered at a local hotel for the entire trial. Gene Hart requested that he give his own opening statement. It was denied by Judge Whistler on the grounds that he could possibly make a legal error when delivering his statement. So, meaning, if the judge would have allowed this to happen, there's a chance Hart could have told his story while not being under oath. Mm. And then he wouldn't have to take the stand during the trial. Mm -hmm. And the jury would get to hear his side of the story Mm-hmm. without be- having to tell the truth. He right. could completely lie. So it really was a smart move on the, ju- on the judge to, to, well, do, to the deny the judge it. wasn't corrupt, I right. guess. Camp counselor D. Ann Elder was the first witness to testify. She stated that at 10.30 p.m., June 12, 1977, the three girls were in their tent, laying in their beds, chatting happily, and one was reading a book. The next morning, she was among one of the counselors going tent to tent to count girls. Pictures of the murder scene and victims' bodies were viewed by jurors. Certain photos were eliminated due to graphic content deemed too overwhelming for the jury to view. Well, I mean, their families were there, too. Absolutely. And I don't know, like, in the 70s, I don't know if it would have been projected on a screen or if they just, you know, passed Passed photos around. around. So, um, well, like, you've got to feel for the families, though, because... They're having to listen to it. Like, they have to listen to it, and... Even if they didn't see the evidence, I mean, I don't know if they did or didn't, but like knowing that there is evidence that shows your little girl and that kind of. Well, and you also have to think like a lot of them, like after the trial were given all, were given all of the girl's belongings back Mm -hmm. and including their sleeping bags, were given them back. And because I, like, it was like Lori Farmer's mom said that they just sat in a box in her attic for the longest time. Like, she didn't want to go through it. I wouldn't have wanted to go through any of that stuff. No, I mean, that's just opening another can of mental health problems, I would think. Absolutely. So Hart then gave a press conference on March 20th. He answered some written questions and a few monitored verbal questions. Mm. So I'm going to give a trigger warning right now. 
Um, this has to do with um, just very graphic child death. Okay. Dr. Neil Hoffman of Tulsa County Medical Examiner testified that all three girls had been beaten, possibly by the head of a camp axe. Doris Milner had died of strangulation, while Lori Farmer and Michelle Gousset were killed by blunt force traumas to the head. He described the condition the bodies were in, being bound and mutilated, and all three sexually assaulted. He believed one girl to have been assaulted after her death due to lack of bleeding from the wounds. Oh my gosh, that's disgusting. Ann Reed, OSBI Tech, stated that microscopic exams of hair found on Doris Milner's body and in the victim's tent and hair taken from heart showed identical characteristics. Two chemists testified that hair and other statements taken from heart could not positively, without a shadow of a doubt, link heart to the murders. This evidence could only give clues of someone's race. They also stated Hart and the victims shared the same body type. How frustrating. So here's a kooky fact. Sperm was present. Mm -hmm. But Hart had undergone a vasectomy several years earlier and theoretically could not produce sperm. The prosecution argued that Hart's vasectomy performed by a 78-year-old doctor, had been only partially successful. Mm. Consulting physicians said such cases could result in non-productive, deformed sperm. Hart had type O blood and was a secretor. The semen samples from the, bot- from the victim's bodies was from a non-white male who was a secretor with type O blood and contained deformed sperm. Mm. The number of people in the United States who meet all of this criteria Mm -hmm. represent 0.002% of the population. Interesting. The defense's tactic was to cast Hart as the hometown underdog, a good guy who was being targeted by law enforcement teams that needed to convict someone. Don't don't make me get on my soapbox again. (laughs) The prosecution was presented all the same evidence that it had during the hearing, strengthening its case with the addition of the mirror and the pipe, as well as the semen theory that we just went over. The defense attacked the reliability of the evidence and witnesses, continuing to push Sheriff Weaver's judgment of Hart's guilt. They insisted that evidence had been planted to convict heart and it's hard not to see that too with that pipe and the mirror Mm -hmm. and and the pictures but at the same time they've got all this other forensic evidence yeah that isn't necessarily pointing directly at him but is definitely pointing around him right right yes honestly all the state's evidence at that time was circumstantial because of technology in 1979. Would that be the same if it happened in 2023? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There just wasn't the technology available. Right. And in this case, forensics was highly involved and we just didn't have the capability to, you know, to do that. So the prosecution really had to tie all the evidence to heart, especially all the things found in the caves and at the crime scene. 
So they really did have their work cut out for them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Larry Dry again testified that he and Hart had hidden in cave number one, a.k.a. the cellar cave. Mm -hmm. After their escape from jail, he stated they had rigged flashlights just like the one found at the crime scene. He said he had seen Hart with women's pictures in the cave. Ann Reed again testified that the hairs found on Doris Milner matched Hart's. But again, she had to also admit that you could not positively identify someone based on hair, Mm. just their heritage. (sighs) Janice Davis testified that the blood found on the victims was typo and Hart also had type O blood. She initially testified that she had not found sperm during her first test. However, when she used a higher powered microscope, she was able to find the sperm. Uh. And okay. I just wonder if it's because it was deformed, maybe, or I don't know. I don't, but maybe, maybe I don't. Well, what made her decide to use a higher power yeah. one? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe she saw something and she didn't know what it was. So then she got a higher power. I don't know. This is, don't know. is she the same one who said that at the hearing or whatever it was? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Dr. McLeod from Cornell also testified, stating that after elaborate tests, quote, it would not be unreasonable to infer, end quote, that the sperm belonged to Hart. <sighs> uh, he stated he did not find any evidence that excluded Hart. Interesting. Well, so now here's the kicker. Dr. McLeod's conclusions were based on population statistics and probabilities, not hard forensic evidence. Plus, Hart had had the vasectomy prior to the crime. But again, who knows if it was successful? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read another paragraph from the same book. Uh, this one's on page 139. Under today's evidentiary requirements for the admission of, quote, expert testimony, it is unlikely either Reed, Janice Reed's, mm-hmm. or McLeod's testimony regarding the sperm or hair samples would be admissible but at the time, DNA testing did not exist, and such inconclusive pseudoscience might as well might as well have seemed credible mm-hmm. to the jurors. Mm. So, you know, at the time, it was just a pseudoscience. Today, that probably wouldn't have been it. But today, we have so much better technology right. that, you know, if they would have just given these statements of, oh, you know, we can't promise that it is him we can't promise that it isn't him i think you know that wouldn't be admissible today but we have the technology now that we could definitely do it right camp counselor karen mitchell testified that the corn cob pipe and hand mirror were hers she stated that she had left them in a foot locker when the camp was closed when the locker was eventually returned to her those two items were missing she was unable to tell the court where the locker had been or who had handled it while it was out of her possession. Oh, that's interesting. And so you also have to think that she knows she put him in there and most likely she left in such a hurry. She probably didn't even check to see if they were in there before she left. Right. So she couldn't tell the court if they were in there before she left or not. Yeah. Jurors were taken. And especially like because this is almost two years after this. Exactly. How do you know that you remember that? Exactly. Those those details. I mean, she definitely knows that she took him to camp. Yeah. You know, so. Jurors were taken to Camp Scott to view the murder scene. Nothing was pointed out to them, though, and no one was allowed to talk to them. Mm. Every day, the courtroom was packed. 
The parents of Lori Farmer and Michelle Gousset, along with Doris Milner's mother, were present every day. Now, remember, Doris's father, he was um, a Tulsa police officer. Mm -hmm. He stated that he could not come to the trial. When asked by D.A. Fallis why he wasn't going to come to the courtroom, Walt Milner simply replied, if he were to come to court, he would, quote, kill that son of a bitch. Wow. In addition to Ella Mae Buckskin and other Hart family members that were also present. The streets surrounding the courthouse were packed with media and onlooker, onlookers. The prior Daily Times nicknamed this the Trial of Mothers. Oh. In an article focusing, they wrote an article focusing on Mrs. Farmer, who was Lori's mom, uh-huh. and Mrs. Buckskin. They kind of did a compare and contrast. Ugh. Attorney Isaacs for the defense and uh, Fallis for the prosecution were incredibly aggressive and contentious towards each other the entire time. Like, it was back and forth fighting. They made numerous objections and fought daily. It is said to have been very tense and combative environment. I can see that. After both Karen Mitchell and Dr. McCleod testified, the state rested. Quote, the state had made some kind of case against Hart, but as one reporter pointed out, it was complex and difficult to understand. End quote. Mm. So that probably wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. The defense was able to point out so many holes in the prosecution's case. One, the bloody footprint in the tent matched many boot prints found around the caves, the convenience store, and the farm, but it wasn't the same size as Hart's. The fingerprint on the flashlight found at the scene was not Hart's. The pipe and the mirror were found after two other searches of Sam Pigeon's home and after the preliminary hearing and long after the murders had taken place. Chief chemist at Regional Crime Lab in Independence, Missouri, and employed by Kansas City Police Department, John T. Wilson, he agreed with the presence of sperm on the victims and in Hart's underwear, but, quote, Beyond that, I couldn't place any importance on it, end quote. Oh. But then again, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't prove one way or another whose it was. Yeah. He also stated that a person could not be identified by their hair. H.E. Maxey, physicist and chemist and former employee of Oklahoma Health Department, also agreed with this chief chemist from Missouri, Wilson, and criticized Dr. McLeod. Tom Kite, a Vietnam veteran who helped in the manhunt of Hart, testified that Sheriff Weaver implied that Hart was to be killed on sight. Kite was told by Weaver that Hart's prints had been found at the Schoff's burglarized farmhouse and that Hart was armed with a 12-gauge shotgun. Hart's fingerprints were not found at the farmhouse and he was never armed. The defense called two others to try and establish an alternative suspect. Joyce Payne and her son, Larry Short, testified that a month before the murders, Short had loaned Bill Stevens, a convict behind bars in Kansas, a flashlight similar to the one found at the crime scene. Both mother and son stated that Stevens had showed up at their home in Okmulgee the morning of the murders with scratches on his neck and arms and red stains on his boots. Stevens later would give an alibi and both Payne and Short were tried for perjury. Because I'm pretty sure Stevens was actually in jail at the time. 
Oh my gosh. Here is a kooky fact though. The perjury trial resulted in a deadlocked jury. They could never determine if the two were lying or telling the truth. Oh my gosh. Like, come on. A waitress, Mrs. Dean Boyd, from a Choteau Cafe, testified that a man resembling Stevens had come in the morning of the 13th. He acted strange and appeared to have blood on his boots. He talked about having car trouble, hair, blood, and semen samples were taken from Stevens and had eliminated him as a suspect for the murders. Camper Kimberly Lewis testified that the night of the murder, she had seen a strange man at camp. He resembled Stevens, not Hart. Deputy Sheriff A.D. David was called, stating he did have access to Karen Mitchell's footlocker, which had been kept at the Locust Grove Police Station. He stated that it was never inventoried, implying that the evidence found at Pigeons could have been taken and planted. It's like they wanted this case to fail. I, yeah. I mean, it's just... It's frustrating because I think... They had the right things. Yeah. But there was a prejudice involved. Uh-huh. And there, it was like every, they just did too much. They didn't let the evidence speak for itself. Right. And they just tried too hard and it flubbed everything up. I don't, it's just, it is, it's like the most frustrating thing. Alan Little, former Mays County Jailer and current, as of 1979, dispatcher for Jay Police Department, testified that he had seen the pictures found at Cave One in Sheriff Weaver's desk after Hart escaped almost three years before the murders. Hmm. Additionally, Little said that the word at the Sheriff's Department during the manhunt for Hart was, quote, to shoot on sight and that the man who brings him in alive won't have a job, end quote. Interesting. It's so like they you didn't just want don't him. even know who to believe. They didn't want so it they tried the defense tried to make it out and they have several witnesses that say this that he what they didn't want him to come in alive. They wanted him to come in dead. Not alive. Yeah. Dead. Little stated he feared for his life and asked for police protection. After he had made these statements, Jeb, Judge Whistler denied it. Sam Pigeon was called to testify through a Cherokee interpreter. Now I I listened to another podcast last week and mm-hmm. everyone I guess I didn't realize this but there's a difference between an interpreter and a translator. Oh. A translator simply translate verbatim whatever it is uh-huh. into whatever the native language is. An interpreter helps the person being talked to who needs the translation that who uh-huh. has the language barrier helps them interpret and make sense of what is being said. Interesting. So okay. he claims he had he had never seen that pipe or the mirror at his house ever before. He also claimed to only speak two to three words of English, yet OSBI had interviewed him in English. So I don't know in the OSBI reports, like what does his report say? Yeah. Did he make any comments? Did he not make any comments? Sheriff Weaver was also called, denying that the photos were ever in his desk. He identified the items Hart possessed when he was booked into Mays County. When he initially was booked, he had a belt and nail clippers on him. After his escape, he had no personal belongings. 
Three Girl Scouts and two leaders testified that they had been in the same tent as Kimberly Lewis and they did not see the strange man that she said she saw. Anne Reed was recalled and stated that the hairs found on Doris Milner, when compared to the hair of Bill Stevens, quote, were not consistent in microscopic characteristics and did not have the same source as those from the victims, end quote. So again, saying that it matched hearts. Yeah. So let's talk about our closing arguments now. Okay. The state emphasized the hideous nature of the crime and the weight of the many facts that did connect Hart. The defense attacked those connections and assumptions as well as insisted that evidence had been planted. Phallus and Isaac continued to fight during these closing arguments. Isaac even yelled out, liar, liar, at Phallus. Pants on fire. Right. Judge Whistler considered ruling a mistrial at that, but ended up deciding against it, which I wish, and like, in hindsight, I wish he would have. Yeah. Isaac was later held in contempt uh, for the liar remark, but he was allowed to apologize to have it purged. Mm-hmm. Mm. It is believed for once the closing arguments may have helped decide the case. And, and in most cases, it's said that closing arguments usually don't help decide a case, but mm-hmm. they believe that maybe here. And so I'm going to read page 145 from the same book again. And it says, in spite of television and movie theatrics, to the contrary, closing arguments by the lawyers rarely decide any case. In the Hart case, however, remarks made by Isaacs in his closing statement may have had a profound influence on the outcome. Addressing the jury, Isaacs referred to the fact that Hart already had sentences of 305 years hanging over his head. Given this knowledge, the jury could assume... That if it found Hart not guilty, he would still be in prison for the rest of his life. Knowing this, the consequences of a mistaken acquittal did not carry the same gravity it might have. To, to this day, D.A. Fallis, he believes this remark is what led to Hart's verdict. Because even if they got it wrong, he was going to still be in prison. Which I, I think is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just rolling my eyes over here. <laughs> so noon on Thursday, March 29th, 1979, the jury began deliberations. They took a dinner break and requested to listen to the recording of Karen Mitchell's testimony and that of OSBI agent Carrie Thurman. They ended at 9.30 p.m. but reconvened at 9 a.m. March 30th. By 9.30 a.m., they had reached their verdict. A unanimous not guilty, was read aloud. Though this investigation was not closed, it wasn't renewed either. So usually if an investigation doesn't get the, they kind of renew it to start looking at other things. Mm -hmm. Gene Hart's victory was short-lived though. He returned to McAllister to serve out his 308, 305 year sentence. However, he died of a heart attack June 4th 1979, so not even three months later. Mm-hmm. Three days before Hart passed away, along with his inter- attorneys, he gave an exclusive interview with the Cherokee Advocate. And that's where I'm going to end the trial. <sighs> just, I'm frustrated and it's just baffling to me. It's just right. absolutely baffling to me. And it's sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially that closing. Like, I want, like, 
How dare you? Yeah, to act like it's not. It like, doesn't even matter that three little girls were murdered because he's still going to go to prison. He's still going to go to prison and serve his sentence. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I. How do you sleep at night? I mean, I I understand that defense lawyers have a tough job, and there has to be defense lawyers, and a lot of times they have to defend really crummy characters. But, but to make a statement like that about three like little that. girls that that their families are. Sitting, sitting there in that room their mothers are sitting there and i realize that your defendant is someone else's child mm-hmm. and she is sitting there mm-hmm. but you know he was how i mean he was a grown man these yeah. were two little tiny baby girl you know three little tiny baby girls yeah i mean they they, they were still in grade school they yeah. hadn't even gone to middle school yet. I know. So how dare you say something like that? And that's, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's so disrespectful. Absolutely. Right. It's just disrespectful. Right. And, and it just, I, it, I, it's, it's heartbreaking. And to think, I can't imagine what went through those parents' head when he was found not guilty and now, like, now what do you do? Now, like, what do you do? How do you... Because there's no closure you, for you. Exactly. How do you start to live the rest of your life knowing that either A, your child's killer is still on the loose, mm-hmm. or B, your child's killer is sitting behind bars but not having to answer for the crime of your child. Right. So uh, next week, we're definitely going to get into... Um, a lot of the updates, there have been several updates through the years. You know, it's been almost 50 years now at this point, And we'll even go into the um, update from 2022 yeah. when they, I believe, officially closed the case. And um, so, yeah, that'll be kind of something that Jess and I bounce back and forth again on each other, off of each other, I guess I should yeah. say. So um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, make sure that you reach out to us on our socials. Also, you're welcome to email us at CuriousCousinsOK at Gmail. Uh, please rate, review, and follow us on your favorite podcast listening platform, including Apple, Stitcher. Nope, not Stitcher. Stitcher's <laughs> gone now. Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and Google. And Jess, tell them what to keep it. Keep it cookie and spooky. Bye. Bye.